All right, I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 121, and I want to pray for us as we get into the message. Father, I want to thank you uh, for last Sunday in the old year, looking forward to a new year, 2019. And Lord, I don't know about everybody's mood, but I, I know so many people I've talked to have said they just feel heavy at the end of, of one year and at the beginning of the next. Father, as we, uh, as we tackle the topic of anxiety this morning, I pray that you'd just bring us to a place of, of joy and delight in who you are and your sufficiency for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning I want to talk about what to do when anxieties multiply from Psalm 121. I want to take you back to uh, a hard thing that happened earlier this year in Chino, California. Uh, there is a, a church there called Inland Hills Community Church. And the pastor, Andrew Stockline, was there on August 25th, and this was to be the last day of his life. The church was founded by his father, and uh, it was a big church. It was a growing church. His father um, founded the church, and he passed away, and so his son Andrew took over. His son Andrew was in his 30s took over, and at first things were great. This young man had a great sense of humor, and he was a great communicator. And then the pressure of his work got to him. And the pressure really crescendoed after a mission trip. When he was exhausted, he was sick, he came back, he had Easter services to do, and, uh, and he he flipped out. He just freaked out. He went to the ER with anxiety, and he felt so ashamed that he put sunglasses on, a cap on, and he was afraid that if he goes to the emergency room that everybody in his church is going to know the pastor had gone in there, not for any identifiable problem, but because he was anxious. And that was unacceptable to him. And so he came in in disguise. The elders of the church gave him uh, three months off, came back and began being very open about his problems and his struggles with anxiety, but the anxiety returned with a vengeance, and with the anxiety came depression, and on August 25th, he made an attempt on his life, and he died, and the church was devastated. His wife uh, was devastated. She was a mother of, of I think it was three or four young children, devastated. And one of the things that that very public suicide did in Southern California was it opened up a, a conversation about anxiety, depression, and mental illness. So according to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, anxiety disorders are the most common form of mental illness in the US and they affect close to 40 million Adults, that's close to 20% of the population. The problem with, with anxiety is that anxiety, uh, if, if you don't deal with it, almost inevitably leads toward depression. And with the depression comes all sorts of complicating factors. According to the academic journal Depression and Anxiety, anxiety disorders are highly co correlated with suicide attempts. And one of the problems is that uh, it's often pointed out that people in the church don't talk about this. They don't talk about anxiety. I, I can't tell you the number of pastors I've talked to who have confessed to me that they have felt anxiety 
and they say, I can't talk about this in my church because if I talk about this in my church, people are going to think that I'm not walking with the Lord. And therefore, I've, I, this is a very private thing. I can, I, can never, I can never talk about it. When I started talking about it about seven or eight years ago, I noticed the trend among men that I probably mentioned to you before where I would meet together, meet with a guy, and he, he would say to me, I haven't told anybody else this, but, and then they would confess a serious event with anxiety, something that felt very shameful to them. Like, I, I shouldn't be dealing with this. You know, I'm, I'm in my 40s or my 50s, and life seems to be going pretty good. I should not be dealing with this, with this issue. The more I heard about this, the more open I became about an event that took place in my life. This was in the year 2013, or, or 20, 20, 2003. I was in Russia, and I was teaching 50 church planters about some of the principles of planting churches. I had 50, 50 guys out there looking at me, and I was teaching in English through a translator. And these were 50 very gifted men. And that morning, I had had way too much coffee. And at the break, I had way too much of that very strong Russian chai, the tea. And by about 2.30, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I feel my heart racing. I feel my chest tightening. I feel my, myself sweating. I'm thinking, what is going on? <laughs> like, like what, what, what is this? I knew what it was. It was, it was about with anxiety. It was a horrible feeling to go through. Um, I told my translator, I'm not feeling very good. Now, nobody, nobody who's listening to me knew what I said. I, I, don't, I don't feel very good. I said, let's, let's take a break. We took a break. I came back. I began teaching again. Same symptoms took place again. And I, I knew it was anxiety. I knew it was a panic attack. And so for the rest of the trip, the rest of the trip went fine. But for the rest of the trip, I got a little bit more sleep, did not have quite as much of that Russian tea. And things went a whole lot better. But I, there's, not a, there's not a, literally, I, if I am honest with other, with other men that I talk to, there's not a guy that I have, I've met with who's honest with me who hasn't told me, I went through a serious event with anxiety that I thought was going to, was going to cripple my career. It was, it was that bad. Not everybody goes through it, but nearly every man that I've talked to has confessed to me that he's had an event like that in his life. Psalm 121 deals with that exact issue. And so what I, what I want to do is I want to, first of all, look at what the problem is with anxiety and then three strategies to begin to deal with it. Here's the reality. When you face a new season of life, it's very easy for anxieties to begin to multiply. And we're going to begin with the, with the superscription, which is the title, and then verse 1. This is called a song of ascents. I'll explain that in a second. And then verse 1 says, I lift up my eyes to the, hill, to the hills. From where shall my help come? Where is my help going to come? So um, this psalm of ascents is one of a number of psalms called pilgrim psalms, and they, they stretch from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. So it's 15 psalms, and these psalms were like Christmas carols. 
there were three pilgrimage feasts in Israel, and you would go from wherever you lived in Israel, and you would walk toward Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was on a mountain, so you would ascend up to Jerusalem, and they would sing these songs just like you sing, O Silent Night, just like you sing, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear, and so on. These were common songs that just felt like the feasts and the festivals. And part of the reason why they're called ascent psalms is because when you got to Jerusalem, you would actually ascend the stairs up to the temple. And people would sing these psalms as they ascended to the temple. And if one person is singing the psalm, it's like a bunch of other people would join in and they would sing that psalm as well. This was their hymn book for their treks into, into, into Jerusalem. So um, this, as the psalm opens, this psalm writer is on a journey, most likely with his family, and he has a very specific problem. The problem is he's in a very dangerous place. Now, we don't know exactly where he was because the psalm doesn't tell us, but we're pretty sure we know because everybody who came to Jerusalem had to go through Jericho and take the Jericho Road into Jerusalem. And I will tell you that the Jericho Road was a very dangerous road. This is what it looks like outside of Jerusalem. I hope that is large enough for you to see. Today, there's not much there. You don't see a whole, you don't see a McDonald's over there and a Chick-fil-A over there. There's nothing. There's no water. Even today, there's no water. And so as you are as you are walking, you're walking on this path that is very steep on one side going up and very steep on the other side going back down. And parts of the path could look like that. And what would happen on these, on these journeys, it was 17 miles long, what would happen on some of these journeys is that there would be political terrorists. Now, I'm not even using that word like I'm trying to be hip with a culture because the Greek word there means a highwayman or a bandit, a bandit, and sometimes those were applied to people who were political highwaymen. And they would hide out in some of these rocky areas, and you would round a bend, and people would come upon you and beat you up and leave you half for dead. Now, the next slide I'm going to show you was totally staged, okay? Nobody was hurt or harmed in the production of this slide. But imagine you round a corner and you see a body on the path. I mean, th that happened on the Jericho Road all the time. You'd round a bend and there, somebody had been beaten up and all of his stuff had been taken and now he's, he's left for dead. So, He's saying, okay, I'm lifting up my eyes to the hills. Where is my help going to come from? Certainly nobody in the hills is protecting me. There's no police force up there. There's no Navy SEAL helicopter ready to fast rope down and help me if I get into trouble. I have no help from up there in the hills. I have no help. None whatsoever. That's the image of this, of this psalm writer. If you look at the language of the passage, you, you discover something about the husband and father who is processing his anxiety. 
the verb tense, lift up my eyes to the hills, is a continual present. It's like he continues to look up. Okay, am I okay here? If I round the bend and something happens, am, 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 am I, am I going to be all right? It's a statement of extreme anxiety. Man, if I get caught in this trap, Lord, I, I, have, no, I, I have no one to help me. I'm toast. I'm done. I'm in, I'm in big trouble. So let's just pause for a second and apply these anxieties to the anxieties we face. I want to bring out kind of the theology of the psalm here. Because as followers of Jesus, you know, like this psalmist, we are on a journey of worship. Romans chapter 12, verses, verse 1 and 2, 12, 1 especially. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to continually present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. See, they, they went to Jerusalem three times a year to worship. We are engaged in a continual worship experience with God. Moreover, we are on a journey that we would call the, this journey of the Christian life. And this journey of the Christian life is a journey in which we are citizens of heaven and we are resident aliens on this earth. As citizens of heaven, our ultimate allegiance is to the kingdom of God. As resident aliens on this earth, we live in the world, but we don't derive our identity from it. And so we're on a, a journey, a worship journey. And like, like the psalm writer, who's also on a worship journey, um, we can go into times of stress. And stress isn't bad. I mean, stress is really essential to life and growth. I don't know how many people want to get muscles without physical exercise, but it can't be done. You've got to stress your muscles in order to build new muscles. Uh, if you want to grow strong and resilient, you have to be resilient against stress. Stress is not bad. If you want to be emotionally strong, sometimes you've got to go through emotional heartache and difficulty. Stress is not a bad thing. Stress is a good thing. And God, your Father, sometimes in his love and mercy, allows you to go through times of stress, not because he's abandoned you, but because he loves you and he wants you to go strong. He wants adult men and women who are strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might can, can go and, and tackle life really well. So stress is not a sign of God's abandonment. Sometimes it's a sign of God's love. But we sometimes can deal with our stress the wrong way and allow our stress to morph into anxiety, into fear, into panic. Some of you may be there right now. So I, I know the statistics. And I know that in a, in a room like this, there are a significant number of people who are dealing with some sort of stress. It could be a situational stress, like I need a new job. It could be a situational stress like, I have a health issue, and I don't know how this health issue is going to, be, going to be resolved. Some of you have suffered loss over this past year. Some of you have just suffered with a free-floating anxiety that you can't sort of pin down, but it's there, and you feel fluttery and jittery a lot of the time. Sometimes... 
you know, you may be like the psalm writer saying, okay, God, where's my help going to come from? I don't see it around me. The hills are, are bare. I don't see anybody. I don't see a red cross over there. I don't see a shelter over there. I don't see any place where my help could come from. I need you. God, I need you. And that, that may be where you are this morning. You're at that place where you're, you're like the psalmist. I'm looking around. Where's my help going to come from? So at this point, after verse 1, the psalmist switches gears, and he goes from fear to faith. He goes from panic to a sense of poise. He goes from a sense of anxiety to a sense of assurance. And he gives us some, some ways that he has found to address his fears and to address his anxieties. Remember, his anxieties are pretty acute because he's continually lifting his eyes up in fear to the hills, realizing there's no help for him at all, apart from God. So the first defense against anxiety is this discipline that I think is so crucial to the Christian life. And it's called by a number of different things. I call it the discipline of self-soothing. It is a very biblical discipline. It's used throughout the Psalms. It is especially prevalent here. Here's what he says. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, that's just a handful of words, but in those words are a brilliant discipline. Now, notice his statement isn't offered as a prayer. His statement is offered as a bit of self-talk. He is talking to himself. He's not saying, all right, God, help me. I'm at wit's end. He's talking to himself. The presence of God, he's sensing his presence, no doubt, but he's talking to himself at this point in time. Now, I've talked to people about this, and they say, I, I don't want to learn how to talk to myself. I think talking to yourself is weird. I don't think that's a biblical discipline, even though it's clear in the scriptures that it is. I've talked to a lot of people who don't want to talk to themselves. They don't want to see this as a discipline. Here's the reality. In reality, you're talking to yourself all the time. There was a study that was cited by J. Allen Peterson in his book, The Myth of the Greener Grass, and he says, we talk to ourselves at a rate of 200 words per minute, and sometimes we can talk to ourselves in images that take us up to 1,200 words a minute. He said we are constantly talking to our, whether we like it or not, we're constantly talking to ourselves. There is a psychological term for this, and it's called intra, not interpersonal, but intrapersonal communication. And intrapersonal communication is the internal dialogue that goes on inside you all the time, including your thoughts, including things like self-empathy. Uh, we were with one of our grandchildren, and I forget, I forget who it was, but this but this child was saying to herself, it's okay, it's okay, you're okay. What was that? That was, that was intrapersonal communication. It was self-soothing. Uh, we use these things in motivation. Come on, Rod, you can, you can do it. You know? Or you're playing tennis, okay, you, you, can, you can get this serve. That's intrapersonal communication. It's in decision-making where you say, you know, if, if, okay, if, if I buy this, it's a little out of my price range, but if I buy this, it's going to be really good for my family, and I'll save some money. That's talking to yourself. That's intrapersonal communication, and we do it all the time. Now, sometimes people are totally oblivious about this. 
They're completely oblivious about this, and other times people are very aware of their intrapersonal communication that happens all the time. When I talk to people about this, I, I ask them, slow down for a second, and just, just be mindful this week of what you say to yourself when nobody is around. And some of the thoughts are pretty negative, actually. You know, where you say things like, you're going to fail at this. You're going to screw this up. They're not going to like you. In fact, nobody likes you. You've got way too many limitations to take this job. Where, where does that come from? Well, sometimes it comes from tapes that you remember from your childhood. Maybe people said that to you, a parent, a coach, a teacher, or so on. Maybe it comes because of some bad internal habits you got into when you talk negatively to yourself. Or sometimes it's spiritual warfare. We have, we have an enemy, the evil one himself, who loves to project thoughts into our brain. Why does Paul say, put on the helmet of salvation? Because he wants us to be protected from the negative thoughts that the evil one can sling into our heads like a fiery dart. He loves to shoot arrows of condemnation into this. You, you're a bad fill-in-the-blank, mother, father, employee, athlete, whatever. And so it's very easy for us to get all this negative self-talk happening, and um, you've got to confront it in order to deal with anxiety. There were two researchers, um, Shalini Ball and George Milne at the University of Massachusetts. And they, they, they describe this as having a meta-self. It's not a technical word, but sort of a, sort of a conceptual idea, a meta-self where you, you stand back from all the conversations happening in your mind. You just observe what's going on. Like, what happened just then? What, what, why did you, why'd you condemn yourself just then? Why'd you say that you were stupid? when you stubbed your foot on the dog and you tripped? Why'd you say the dog was stupid? What's going on in your life? It's that, that meta-self, you're observing, you're observing um, what's, what's happening. And as you observe that, you start to think, I, I can use positive statements in order to confront the negative statements. And the positive statements are based upon biblical revelation. So what are the positive statements that this this psalm writer uses. I'll go back to the statement. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Okay? So he gives two affirmations. Number one, my help comes from a person, the Lord. So he's not able to see any help on the hills around him, but he knows that the invisible, omnipresent God who is always there is right there with him and that person is able to render him some help. His help comes from a person, the Lord. And even there, the, the term he uses is, is a really important term. That's, this is Yahweh. This is the covenant-keeping God. This is the God who loves us with an unconditional love. This is the omnipresent God who walks by us in our most dangerous, anxiety-ridden situations, and he pours out his love upon us. That's the person who can come to us and comfort us in our anxiety. And a second affirmation, 
is that he's going to recite the attributes of this God, um, and he cites two attributes, helper and maker of heaven and earth. I love this word, this word helper. This word helper is used all throughout the Old Testament, and the word helper means this. It means someone with power assisting someone who needs power. Someone with power assisting someone who needs power. The word helper is used first in Genesis 2.19 of the woman created for Adam. Adam is incomplete. And so God gives Adam someone with power to render aid to one who needs power, a helper. God is often described as the helper of Israel. So his affirmation is, look, God is the one who gives power to those who lack power. That's the one in whom I'm trusting. Not only that, but this God has the ability to do it. He's the maker of heaven and earth. Well, where, where does that phrase come from, Genesis 1.1? Genesis 1.1, God is the, is the creator of the cosmos. So does this psalm writer need somebody up in the hills guarding him? He says, no, what, what I need is the maker of those hills. I need the God of the universe who crafted the universe from nothing. He is the one who is able to protect me even in my place of anxiety. So what does this model, model to us about anxiety? We've got to be mindful in the moment of our, of our self-talk. And we've got to ramp up positive biblical self-talk and say to ourselves, self, self, you're okay. God of the universe loves you. God of the universe is by your side. The God of the universe is going to empower you. The God of the universe is sufficient for your needs. So let me tell you what happened to me in my, in my, my situation in Russia. I'm there in Russia, and I'm, I'm in front of 50 very gifted pastors, people who, who have, in some cases, endured great persecution. I'm feeling this tightness, and I'm thinking, what, what in the world is this? And I'm talking to my translator, and my translator is totally taken aback, like, no, I, I can't. Uh, he, was, he didn't know what to do. All right, let's take a break. So during my break, I'm saying to myself, and literally, I'm, I'm saying stuff like this, Rod, this is an anxiety issue. You've dealt with this before. You probably deal with it again. It's going to pass. It's not that big a deal. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You'll weather this. No problem. No problem. God is sufficient for you in this moment. I went back, tried it again. Didn't do so well. We ended about an hour earlier, which was actually a good thing for everybody involved. And and in that second bout with it, I still said, it's okay, you'll get through this. God is gonna be sufficient to take care of this. That really helped me. And that became a paradigm for me dealing with the issue of anxiety. And I've told a lot of people, I, I said, you know, when the anxiety comes, welcome it, welcome it. And, and Talk, your, talk to the Lord as you're talking your way through it. Oh, the anxiety's coming. It's okay. It'll last about 10 minutes. Not a problem. 
I'll be over this in a little while. Lord, I, I need your help right now. And, and just let it wash over, and then it will end. And that, is, that has happened many times. But it starts with self-soothing. That's what the biblical psalm writer says. Now, we have a second defense against anxiety, and that is, that is by depending upon God moment by moment, actively relying upon his, his, uh, him, his power and, and relying on him in prayer when the anxiety comes. So verses 3 through 6, we discover two prayers. <clears throat> Here's verse 3. He will not allow your foot to slip. Remember where he is. He is on the Jericho Road. That's my, my I surmise that's where he is. And there's big hills on one side, and there's steep cliffs on the other side, and you could, have a, you, could, you could slip on the Jericho Road. He's saying, okay, he will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. Notice how many times the word keep and keeper is used. We'll get back to that in a second. But the first, the first prayer is this. In times of anxiety, I need to ask God to keep me faithful so that I don't slip off the path. See, the psalm writer is using this idea of path as an emblem for the entirety of my life. Okay? You're on a path right now. Everybody in this room is on a path. That path represents the entirety of your Christian life. And this is a, a statement almost worded like a prayer. God, don't let me slip off the path of faithfulness, even in my anxiety. I don't want to slip off that path. I want to stay on that path all the time. How might you slip off the path in a time of anxiety? Well, people who address issues of social anxiety might result to unhealthy dependence on alcohol. Some people think that's a way of, of making anxiety a little bit easier to deal with. Somebody anxious about sexuality might resort to sexual activities that are very damaging to himself or herself. A person anxious about leadership might resort to micromanaging behaviors in the way they handle or treat people. A person anxious about feelings of emptiness might resort to food. In other words, whenever you're on this path called the Christian life and you encounter anxiety, there's always the temptation to swerve off the path and use other unhealthy things to dull the anxiety so that you don't have to deal with it. Because in anxiety, what you want is relief. And you spell relief like the old Rolaids commercial. How do you spell relief? R-O-L-A-D-S. Well, the way we often spell relief is quick fix. Whatever I can grasp is my quick fix. I want that because I want to eliminate the anxiety right away. So this is, the, this is the first prayer. Lord, keep my foot from slipping. So I, one time I faced anxiety, and, and I, I made a, made a not-so-good not decision within our family. We were at Joshua Tree National Monument in California. Um, oh, here we go. Um, here's Joshua Tree National Monument in California. Beautiful, beautiful place. Great place for a hike. But the day that we were there, we were told that uh, some drug deals were going down in national monuments in Southern California and watch out for people who look like they shouldn't be there. I said, okay, we'll do it. 
Well, watch out for people who shouldn't be there. I didn't think anything of it. Um, we were headed toward this oasis, um, and we were told this was a wonderfully luxuriant oasis in the Joshua National Monument. That doesn't look luxuriant to me, and that was not luxuriant when we saw it. And we, we walked not one mile, but three miles to this, this oasis, and my kids said, that's it? We walked three miles for that? And so we start walking out of the Joshua Tree National Monument. So we're going to have six miles elapsed, and we've got a, I think a five-year-old was on my shoulders, and we've got young kids. And then we start seeing some people who look like they shouldn't be there. <laughs> and what I, what happened to me was my anxiety starts rising as I'm seeing these folks. And I'm realizing, okay, these were the people that we were warned about, I think. I don't know, but I think they are. I started feeling anxiety. So what I should have done is I should have huddled the family up and said, guys, we were, we were warned that some people would be there, so I want you to stay very close to me, all right? And let's just walk purposefully and fast. Instead, what I began doing was barking out orders to the family. That didn't go over real well. So now, rather than having a group that is huddled close together, everybody is spreading out. My daughter, you know, who's probably 13 at the time, she wanted to be as far away from me as, as possible because I was barking out orders. My other daughter, who was 11, she was kind of the same way. What's wrong with that? Like, what's wrong? So pretty soon, we're all spread out. And now my anxiety is like way up here. So how did I deal with my anxiety? I dealt with my anxiety by micromanaging behaviors. And it's very easy to do that. And that's why his first prayer is, Lord, don't allow my foot to slip in the midst of anxiety. Now, here's a, here's a second prayer. And the second prayer is, pray that you would sense God's presence even in the anxiety. Let me make some observations um, about this prayer. Here, here he says, behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. This is a wonderful piece of poetry, and there's a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of great truths in this, but let me point out some observations. First, I want you to notice that God is our keeper, and the idea of God being a keeper should remind you of a walled city in the in New Testament times, because walled cities were walled, and there was a tower at the edge of the city. And at the edge of the city was this tower, and, and this tower was a tower with a, a watchman always in it. And the watchman would look around the city, and if there's anything wrong, he would call out to the police force, and they would right the wrong. And what he's saying is, he who keeps Israel, the entire nation, the people of God, he who keeps the people of God will neither, neither slumber nor, nor sleep. So God is the ultimate watchman. He's also an empowering watchman because it says the Lord is your shade at your right hand. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. Well, in biblical times, your, your right hand, your right hand was your dominant hand. And for somebody to be the shade at your right hand was somebody who was preserving the strength of your right hand so that you could remain strong. What happens 
to your strong hand if you get badly sunburned. Well, you, ugh, it's painful and you're, you're not as strong as you could be. So the Lord is a shade at your right hand. He protects your power. So this is a, a prayer for protecting the power. God, you are my keeper. You're my keeper. But now you also protect my power so that I can be, I can be strong and strong in you. And the third observation is that God protects us from evil people. Um, so he's our watchman. He's our empowering watchman, and he protects us from evil people. Well, how does he protect us from evil people? Well, it says, the sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. These are all mixed up metaphors. But sun by day and moon by night, he's talking about, about sun and moon, day and night. He's talking about all the time. He's talking about all the time. God is your protector all the time. But in this poetry, he's talking about what happens underneath the sun and the moon. And it's the idea that the moon is a figure of speech for crazy people, and the sun is a figure of speech for evil people. So what, what, he, what he's saying in, this, in, in the, these, these words are that God is my protection against every kind of person, people who are evil, people who are crazy. God is the one who is my protector. He'll guard me day and night. So the two prayers that we pray in anxiety is, Lord, help me be faithful to you in anxiety. And Lord, protect me with your powerful, loving care. You're the one who can, who, can, who can protect me. Let me give you a, qu a quick point of application be before, we, before we move on. You know, one, one of the most difficult forms of anxiety is this thing that I've often called the orphan spirit. And the orphan spirit says, there's nobody there for me. God, I know God loves me. He's, he has to love me. He doesn't really like me. I have no, no real close friend that I can confide in. Uh, I know that at work, it's all about my performance. Nobody really cares about me personally. So the orphan spirit is that feeling that you have that you're all alone and God loves you, but he doesn't like you, therefore he sort of tolerates you. And the orphan spirit is a, 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 a feeling inside you that there's... I'm not really solid and stable anywhere, especially within the love of God. And I know that a lot of people, their anxiety stems from that sense of that orphan spirit. And hopefully, one of the things that I, I hope we do in the year 2019 is create an environment at Grace Community Church where people feel the unconditional love of the Father in fresh ways in new ways, in powerful ways. Here's our final defense. Third defense is to rest in God's promises. Here's what he says in the closing verses of the psalm. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. Now, I want you to notice he's taken his experience of fear on the Jericho Road. That's where I'm assuming it is. And he's universalizing this to all the anxiety that he could feel in his life. When he talks about you're going out and you're coming in, he's talking about the entirety of my life. Okay? God is going to guard me, not just on this path toward Jerusalem for the feast, 
but God is going to guard me in my anxiety in the totality of life. Am I worried about my health? Okay, I go to God. Am I worried about my finances? Okay, I go to God. Am I worried about my kids? Okay, I go to God. This acute anxiety on the road has brought up the fact that I can deal with my anxiety in a Godward direction throughout the entirety of my life. But one particular point is really important. The Lord will protect you from all evil? Really? I mean, that sounds like that's patently false on the, on the face of it. We live in a fallen world, and lots of bad things happen to people in a fallen world. Well, here's what he's saying. The Hebrew word for keep, protect you, is, is the word for keep again. So what he's literally saying is this. God will watch over you, and in his sovereignty, he might allow some form of evil to come through, but only that which will strengthen you and make you stronger. That is such an important thing for us to realize because we live in a fallen world and sometimes bad things happen to good people in a fallen world. And we think, God, why did you allow this evil to happen to me? And what you have to remember in that time is whatever takes place in your life has first passed through the loving scrutiny of a holy God. He knows what you're going through. He knows what's happening. You can trust him that he will bring something good out of it. Sometimes that good thing that he brings out of it is a physical healing. Sometimes that good thing he brings out of it is an emotional healing. Sometimes that good thing he brings out of it is ministry into somebody else's life. One of the things I discovered was because we had some hard things with our kids when they were in high school and in early college, that's given us some leverage to speak to people going through some hard things with their kids. So when people say, well, don't you wish you didn't go through that with your kids? I think, no, no, no. I'm really glad we went through it because it bonded our kids toward us as adults, and it's given me some, some ability to, to lovingly help parents in pain. This is a wonderful promise. But when you go through anxiety, the key is to embrace the promises of God. So if you're here this morning and you experience anxiety, I want you to know you're not alone. There are other people in this auditorium who are going through the same thing. I say that not because I know it for sure, but because I know the statistics. And the great thing is that when you are honest about some of your struggles with anxiety, you open up a conversation about how to trust God in the midst of it. Let's stand for our closing prayer. And Paul Gustafson is going to uh, pray over us this morning.